Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. We're going to hit on several topics on this week's edition of On DoD. Later on in the program, the future of the U.S. Navy. As we reported recently, the Navy's about to release its own thoughts about how its leaders believe it can meet what that service sees as growing security challenges. As Admiral Jonathan Richardson, the Chief of Naval Operations, puts it, the Navy will need both more capacity and more capability over the coming decades. Senior officials have previously floated a plan for a 355-ship Navy, much bigger than the fleet of 275 we have today. The Navy and Congress have asked for outside help on what that future fleet will look like. We'll talk to the authors of one of those studies. Also, the Army continues to move down the path of data center consolidation, a new contract vehicle helping it do just that. We'll talk about changes in how the Army buys cloud computing services as part of that overall effort to shut down expensive government-owned data centers. First up, though, the Defense Department is about to launch the third in a series of public bug bounties as a way to help it track down undetected cybersecurity vulnerabilities in its systems. This one's called Hack the Air Force. It'll kick off at the end of this month, inviting white hat hackers from around the world to test a particular subset of Air Force systems for security bugs in exchange for cash prizes so the Air Force can close those holes. We have three guests with us on today's program to talk about Hack the Air Force and DoD bug bounties in general. Alex Rice is the Chief Technology Officer at Hacker One, the private company that's running those hacking challenges under a contract with DOD. Raina Staley is the co-founder and chief of staff of the Defense Digital Service, the internal DOD organization that coordinates and advocates for those non-traditional approaches to IT, and Peter Kim, the Air Force's chief technology officer. And Peter, let me begin with you. Um, start us off by talking broadly about what the Air Force is doing. As we said, this is the third of these public bug bounties. How's this version going to differ from the first two that we saw last year, hack the Pentagon and hack the Army? They're similar, but I think some of the, the scope scopes change. I think uh, uh, we're welcoming the um, participation of uh, citizens from the Five Eye partners. I'm going to use Five Eyes because I think you know what Five Eyes is, but it's uh, Systems from the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, New Zealand, uh, to kind of widen the aperture of the uh, of the participation here. In addition to, um, I think Hack the Pentagon and Hack the Army had just U.S. citizens, uh, but uh, we're going to open it up to U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand on this one. So that's probably the major difference I think I'm hearing out of this uh, for this one. Reina, is there is there anything other huge differences here? Yeah, Jared, and that's opening up to external participation starts to give this a real global simulation and um, allows us to run a kind of a live exercise, not just from uh, U.S. originating traffic, but uh, international traffic as well, which makes this a much more realistic scenario than we've seen executed in the past. And I think in both in, in both of the past hacking cases, the targets really have been public-facing websites. Is that also going to be the case with the Air Force edition? Yeah, yes, that's correct. Yeah. So that being the case, let me let me build on a point that you made a second ago, Peter. What it if if we're only talking about public-facing websites in the first place, which obviously are accessible to everyone around the globe, why limit the participants to Five Eye countries at all? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know the answer to that part, particular question. Raina, do you have a particular answer for why we've expanded to the five A's? Yeah, so for the first Hack the Pentagon challenge, um, it was actually scoped just to U.S. citizens. Um, and that was primarily just because that was a pilot. 
Um, I know traditional bug bounties in private sector are open to the entire globe, but being DOD, it was quite a lot harder to get that, that off the ground. Um, so we started small. Um, we opened it up to U.S. citizens, and it was the same case with Hack the Army. But for Hack the Air Force, we wanted to expand that scope a little bit more and kind of push the comfort zone a little bit further um, and have the participation of four other countries involved, too. And hopefully for future bounties, we can just continue to ex expand um, the scope of participation and get as many eyeballs and as much talent that we can um, participating in these bounties. The goal being to have a, a broad of a context as possible, but because we're dealing with the uh, Department of Defense assets here, uh, attacks against those systems have different implications than attacks against Yahoo or, or Facebook sites. And so we wanted to make sure that any uh, traffic originating against this, there are open lines of communication between those countries to uh, uh, be on the same page about what activity is occurring during those, during those tests. And so I think we're, we're entering new territory here with uh, bug bounty programs run against uh, active military systems and uh, proceeding cautiously is uh, well advised. And Alex, you want to jump in real quick here and just talk a little bit about the vetting process that happens with any participants? Because it's not as though anyone can just uh, attempt and then succeed in a penetration of an Air Force website and then say, I did it, give me some money. Yeah, that's right. We'll have a registration process open from May 15th to May 29th, where individuals who uh, meet the eligibility requirements are encouraged to apply and participate. Those are... Uh, private, private uh, U.S. persons, citizens of the uh, four allies we mentioned before, as well as all uh, federal employees and uh, DOD uniform personnel to uh, apply and, and participate. We'll go through a, uh, a brief vetting process to uh, uh, ensure people are who they who they say they are, and then uh, kick off the hacking challenge on May 30th. In the in the hack the Pentagon and the hack the Army challenges that you've run so far, can you say a little bit about the profiles of the folks who have tended to participate? I mean, what's sort of the range of of expertise um, in, in terms of their professional involvement with cybersecurity? The diversity of these programs is really one of the aspects that makes them so incredibly powerful relative to traditional testing methods. You get people of of all backgrounds and all motivations from. In these programs, we'll have uh, active military red teams to security consulting firms and uh, academics, security researchers, a huge range of people of all uh, diverse backgrounds participating. Um, in addition, in traditional industry programs, most people are participating somewhat for the intellectual challenge, but primarily driven by the financial incentives. And when we run these government programs, we see a a new profile of person come forward who's really driven by uh, patriotic reasons and contributing to the their country uh, realities, which means we see active participation from individuals who don't participate in normal bug bounty programs, and that's uh, a really really powerful dynamic to observe. And Peter and Reina, are, are there any particular sorts of public-facing websites you're targeting with this? I, th I think in the first version, Hack the Pentagon, it was sort of Pentagon uh, news distribution type sites. The Army was more focused on um, personnel uh, focused websites. Is there a particular focus area for the Air Force mm -hmm. edition? 
Yeah, there oh. is. Um, that's not publicly releasable until the actual start of the challenge on May 30th. Um, but what's awesome about, you know, having bounties against public-facing assets is that it has such a wide variety of things it could be. I mean, spanning from logistics to communications to army recruiting like we do with Hack the Army, um, there's just such a wide variety of things, which I think hopefully will increase participation across the broader DOD to submit their own assets for future bounties. Um, but for Hack the Air Force, that'll be releasable on May 30th when the challenge starts. And just to double back on that, I assume the reason you're holding that close to the vest until then is you don't want people to start knocking on those doors before the challenge starts. Yeah, we don't want to yes. do anything premature. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, DOD issued some IDIQ contracts last year to do these bug bounties, uh, $7 million ceiling on those, including uh, $3 million for the one for Hacker One. Is this bounty part of that, or is this a new business arrangement entirely? Nope, it's part of the same contract uh, with Hacker One, correct. And part of the reason I asked that, Reina, is both both those IDIQs and the Air Force Digital Service itself are, in a way, a legacy of the last administration. So have you gotten any signals from the new folks about their level of support for digital services? I mean, have you had any contact yet with the, with the new Office of, Amer of American Innovation, for example? Can you tell us yet whether there's going to be robust support for, for this digital service ethos going forward? Any signs of that? Sure. Uh, definitely during the transition, it was sort of an unknown territory for us. Um, and it definitely required a lot of relationship building. Um, secretary Carter, the former defense secretary, was very um, tech-minded, um, given his background. Um, and the administration isn't as much, but we've definitely um, have built really good relationships with Secretary Mattis. Um, he's aware of who we are, and he's become a big proponent of the work that we're doing um, in fact, I think on his first day, actually, our director gave him a brief on a challenge with SINAC that was going on, one of our more sensitive um, bounties. And so it kind of got on his radar immediately. And so then pending the results of that, um, it became big discussion within DOD. And, you know, his team understand the value and importance of these programs. So um, in regards to that, I think we're in good shape. I mean, the success and the results of what we've done in the past are inarguable. And I think people really value... Um, us being able to incorporate these practices uh, into the DoD in a new and innovative way. Yeah, to that point, I mean, the, the, the feedback, I think, has been very positive, but at the same time, there's really only been three of these over the past year. Uh, I mean, obviously, these are never going to supplant everything that NSA and Cybercom and, and 24th Air Force does to look for vulnerabilities on the network. But, I mean, are we ever going to get to mm -hmm. a point, do you think, where this just becomes to some degree, a routine part of the way the department does penetration testing? Yeah, so these efforts are meant to be complementary and aren't meant to supplant anything that's currently ongoing within DOD. Um, but we definitely want the broader like DOD to take advantage of this as a way to focus attention on assets that might not traditionally be focused on by our in-house talent. Yeah, and Jared, this is, this is Pete Kim. So I, I think it's important to note that me as, uh, me as a CISO, I've, I've been seeing uh, a shift uh, since this uh, this program started, I, I'm seeing a shift to maybe a new paradigm of how we do cybersecurity and defense here in the department. So, me as a CISO, uh, traditionally it's it's the certification accreditation process on getting any system online, whether it's public facing or private, or as Raina was mentioning, a logistics system or a financial weapon system. And it's usually a it's a largely a paperwork driven drill, and it's usually seeking my signature for it's okay, it's secure. Put on the network, but the as is 
the as-is uh, system as it gets deployed never really matches up with the, uh, the as-designed in a lot of cases. So uh, as a CISO, I'd like to know how vulnerable and, and, and what's level of possible exploitation from adversaries. And that's, I think, the paradigm and the, and the new, new way of thinking about security defense is you know, doing something like the bug bounty program to constantly get ahead of this problem instead of kind of, um, kind of waiting uh, and, and seeing when the next rev of the software release is, but trying to be more proactive instead of reactive uh, after an event or an incident occurs. I think it's very important to do to be very proactive these days. And I think that's something I think Cybercom and NSA and 24th Air Force is, is going to move to very rapidly uh, in the future. That's Peter Kim, the Air Force's chief technology officer. Also with us on this part of the program, Raina Staley, the co-founder and chief of staff of the Defense Digital Service, and Alex Rice, the chief technology officer at HackerOne. We'll come back and talk more about Hack the Air Force and bug bounties in government after a short break. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serviz. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Our guests for another few minutes are Peter Kim, the Air Force's Chief Technology Officer, Raina Staley, the co-founder and Chief of Staff of the Defense Digital Service, and Alex Rice, the Chief Technology Officer at HackerOne. We're talking about the upcoming Hack the Air Force Challenge, the third iteration of the public bug bounties DoD is running, inviting white hat hackers from around the world to test its systems. Before the break, Peter Kim was telling us that he thinks the bug bounties DoD has already run have started to change the way DoD thinks about cybersecurity and start to nudge it away from what he called a paper-based compliance mentality. And, and Pete, I'm really glad you raised that point because we've been hearing a bit lately within DoD about, about this idea that you need to do these sorts of bounties not just after a system's deployed to see if it's penetrable after it's already fielded, but also during the development stage too. Are, are you guys thinking about that at all? No, absolutely. So every stage of the uh, design process, engineering, testing, uh, is to do these kinds of cyber testing to see how vulnerable we really are to the real world kinds of exploits that we'll see in, in, in the wild uh, from low level hacking uh, folks, uh, criminals to full up blown up nation states. So uh, we are we are doing that and we're constantly improving. Obviously, this is uh, something that's Sort of new. We weren't doing this five to ten years ago, sure. but I think we're doing more of this now. And I think this is the new way of doing business. You, you've got to, you've got to know how vulnerable you are. And a paperwork drill to do uh, certification accreditation gets you uh, to some level of sense of how secure you are. But the real test is comes when you know these kinds of programs are unleashed on your system, and you really get to know how vulnerable you really are to real world exploits. And yeah, Jared, it's a lesson that uh, IT teams all over the all over the world learn, but the military knows better than anyone that no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. And so, getting these live fire exercises in the in the cyber realm implemented as early as possible have been producing pretty compelling results. And running these against public websites certainly makes sense, since that's certainly your biggest attack surface. But are, are we starting to think about ways to use the same sorts of crowdsourced concepts 
to uh, you know you know do penetration testing against systems that are not exposed to the public internet to to you know protect against things mm-hmm. that could be exploited by insider threats, for example. Sure. So the second IDIQ contract that we have with SUNAC is focused on more sensitive internal DoD assets. So we definitely have two lines of effort. Um, The one with HackerOne is more public facing, but yes, we do have one in tandem for more sensitive um, DoD assets. Uh, Peter, Alex, it sounded like one of you was going to jump in on that, but... Uh, We we are in uh, Air Force specifically. We have some in-house... Cyber experts uh, that are, are looking at that right right now on a variety of uh, of systems, and that's that's probably all I can say about that for now. But uh, understand that some of these systems, um, I want to know how vulnerable they really are to all kinds of uh, different kinds of cyber exploitation. Um, so we're this is kind of a you know if you've been seeing the press on the uh, Air Force Material Command's John Polakowski cyber campaign plan and the cyber resiliency steering groups. I mean, this is obviously a challenge we're taking head on um, and, uh, and addressing right now. So that's all I can, I can probably say about that one right now. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Um, let me just wrap up sort of toward where we started and ask Alex, um, since since uh, Five Eyes are now uh, going to be involved in this, I just wonder if you've been involved in any way with their governments and running, uh, and this is, may have been in the press and I just haven't seen it, but, but in running similar tests against some of their MOD type systems. So the, the UK government is, uh, is following the lead of the Department of Defense in announcing a pilot for their own vulnerability disclosure program, which is uh, um, one of the really powerful lessons learned that came out of the original Hack the Pentagon pilot. And so there are some early signs of life in the uh, UK government adopting similar programs, but uh, not... Uh, not able to discuss any more specifics than that at the moment, I'm afraid, Jerry. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, Raina, let me just build off that question just to wrap up then. Um, the, the, I'm glad Alex mm-hmm. raised the vulnerability disclosure policy. Can you talk about what, if any, dividends you guys have seen from just having that out there since since it's been published, sort of outside the formal confines of these bug bounty challenges? Yeah, definitely. We've seen an influx of reports come in, um, which is awesome because this is the first legal avenue that people have had to ever do this in the history of not even just DOD, but the federal government. So um, what's really awesome is uh, even outside of these bounties for people to submit vulnerabilities to us, we really, you know, it kind of draws upon a person's sense of civic duty and patriotism. And, you know, I think that's really a unique value add to this whole program and for the vulnerability disclosure policy. And we've seen a really positive response. Um, And so we encourage people to continue using those avenues and help contribute to our country's national defense. That's Raina Staley, the co-founder and chief of staff of the Defense Digital Service, talking with us about DOD bug bounties and particularly the upcoming Hack the Air Force Challenge. Peter Kim, the Air Force's chief technology officer, and Alex Rice, the co-founder of Hacker One, also joined us. Another quick break. We'll switch gears when we come back and talk about how the Army's using a new contract to hopefully speed up the process of moving out of government data centers and into the commercial cloud. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbia. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Back in December, the then-Secretary of the Army, Eric Fanning, signed some highly prescriptive guidance, telling Army commanders and other senior leaders exactly what they need to do to get the Army moving on a data center consolidation plan that he said had stalled. 
The objective is to get down to just 10 data centers by 2025 and to shut down the lion's share of the Army's current 1,200 data centers within the next two years. One major target for the systems moving out of brick-and-mortar government facilities is commercial cloud. Last month, the Army awarded 50 contractor spots on a brand-new contract to help migrate applications from government data centers into commercial cloud environments. It's called Accent, and it's now the one and only vehicle Army commands are allowed to use to buy cloud services. Johanna Curry is project officer for the Army Data Center Consolidation Plan in the Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems. In this part of our program this week, she talks with me about how the Army plans to use the new contract to speed up the process of closing old data centers. So the intention is to be able to provide enough flexibility for mission owners to get assistance with transition to commercial cloud as well as hosting. Um, Accent is required for purchasing hosting services, but those transition and modernization support services are optional. So between those roughly 50 vendors altogether that have basic ordering agreements um, that, that want awards under this, how does a how does a capability owner kind of look through all the available services, you know, figure out what's there and select what they need? So rather than select what they need, they would use um, our independent assessment of an application's readiness to migrate to develop a request for proposal that may include those transition and modernization support services. Um, so they they would, for example, say, um, based on my data, I require um, additional security controls to be applied for my system or application. So they would say, for example, I need to be able to host in a cloud impact level four or five cloud service offering. Um, so in, rather than targeting vendors, they would say what kind of service that they need. And the proposals that they receive back would then be limited to those cloud service offerings that were appropriate for that application. And I think generally they would have reached those conclusions as to, you know, what impact level they need, what what the sort of target environment is going to be after going through a bunch of consultation with AMBO, right? So tell us a little bit about, give us a little bit of background on what AMBO is, what AMBO does, what sort of uh, consulting services that you, you would provide to a mission owner before they figure out what they're going to request under the Accent contract. Sure. So AMBO's function is uh, as an independent analysis team, um, advising mission owners on what their requirements would be for any cloud service offering. Um, so we would help them to figure out what their security requirements would be based on the data that they store in their applications um, and the data that they process. So we would make some recommendations about alignment to the cloud impact levels from the Security Requirements Guide from DESA. And we would make some recommendations, high-level recommendations for um, adjustments to architecture if they, they were required or other services that they may need um, in terms of virtualization or transition assistance as part of our migration readiness assessment. And then, as you said, there are there are technical sort of migration services also available within Accent. So how is that different from the, the consulting services that, that you, as, you know, AMBO, are organically providing through the Army? So, again, we're an independent analysis uh, team. So we will, we will, based on the technical analysis of an application's requirements, we'll do make some recommendations for things that need to be changed. Um, if you just put your technical requirements out there um, without any kind of independent 
double check, um, you could end up tied to a specific vendor rather than being able to select from multiple vendors that offer similar services. So they use our migration readiness assessments to develop their proposal requests and then validate that submitted proposals are appropriate for the application that they're planning to move. Right. And of course, AMBO stands for the Application Migration Business Office, not necessarily the Data Center Migration Business Office, which suggests we're not just going to, uh, you know, lift and drop every single thing the Army has from a legacy environment into a cloud environment. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the extent to any to which um, AMBO is involved in figuring out which applications really ought to be killed off outright, which ones should be modernized before they go into a cloud environment. So AMBO's scope is limited to enterprise applications only, so um, local servicing applications that support only users that are contained within a single installation, those don't come to AMBO for assessment. We're only concerned about the enterprise applications. Um, the commands, the domains, and the mission areas have the mission to analyze their portfolio of applications and make the decisions about whether to sustain to migrate or to kill applications in those portfolios prior to coming to AMBO for assessment. And just to give folks a little bit of context, um, a lot of people may remember the December 2016 memo that then Secretary Eric Fanning issued, which I think you could basically call the, you know, the authoritative roadmap at this point for where the Army is headed in terms of application migration and, and, and data center consolidation. Um, let's talk a little bit about how Accent fits into that overall plan and I mean do you have a sense that, that that this contract itself is going to help accelerate the process of consolidating applications and consolidating into a few fewer number of enterprise data centers and into the commercial cloud sure so accent was developed specifically to assist mission owners with migrating their systems and applications from data centers that are scheduled for closure um, into commercial cloud hosting um, so it supports both DOD and Army guidance to pursue commercial cloud hosting as a primary rehosting target. So rather than, um, rather than require application owners to move multiple times hopping between data centers towards um, what would essentially be an enduring data center, they can go directly to commercial cloud through using Accent. And AMBO itself has some tasks uh, to complete under that memo, I think. One, one of them, I'm not sure actually whether this one was directed at AMBO or, or CIO G6, but there was supposed to be um, a complete rationalization and migration plan for all systems and applications, enterprise systems and applications, by June, I, I believe, in coordination with the Office of Business Transformation. Can you give us a, a progress report on that? Is, that? is that plan more or less done as far as those enterprise apps that you mentioned go? So rationalization is underway throughout um, all of the mission areas. So um, the business mission area, which OBT works with, um, that is one of the mission areas that's doing their rationalization of applications. Warfighter mission area is another. They're in the process of reviewing their portfolios and deciding which of their applications they need to sustain or migrate or to kill. So. Um, given that migration planning is completely decentralized, the actual planning and execution is completely decentralized and up to the command and the owning organization, there is no enterprise-wide plan for migration. Mm. Given the planning processes that are underway, and I, I understand that you don't own this process, but um, do you have any expectation of exactly when folks might start making use of the Accent contract to, to start some of these application transition services? So there are several proposals already in the works 
for transition and migration to commercial cloud. Talk a little bit about the awards themselves, especially, for example, the impact levels that they covered. Do we go all the way up to impact level six as far as the proposals that individual vendors submitted and were awarded? Are they qualified up to that level, at least some of them? What's available on on Accent now are cloud impact levels two, four, and five. Um, Cloud impact level six may be available if providers can achieve the DOD authorization to support secret requirements. As of now, we don't have any. Understood. If if I remember correctly, everything at level four and above actually requires the use of uh, a, a cloud access point. Um, what what's the plan for that, or is the Army developing its own cap or going through the DISA one? So um, for now, we'll be using the DISA cap since that's a service that is already stood up and running. Um, I know the Army's talking about establishing their own cap, but I believe that's still preliminary. The structure of Accent itself uses basic ordering agreements rather than what people would think of as a traditional IDIQ for individual task orders to to do to perform these services. Can you talk a little bit about that decision, why, why basic ordering agreements rather than an IDIQ makes sense in this context? Sure. So a basic ordering agreement, or a BOA, is typically used when a service is not well-defined or can't be definitively priced. So we chose this approach because it allowed us to balance uh, known baseline security requirements and service levels with enough flexibility for a mission owner to request proposals from accent vendors that are specific to the needs of their organizations. So for example, um, if, if you have a, as a mission owner, if you had a need for specific transition services, there's enough flexibility in there to say, I need this specific type of transition service in order to move into a cloud service offering at a specific target impact level. So it allows us to express to industry, hey, these are our baseline requirements, and also gives the mission owners some flexibility as well. Uh, a lot of choices under the contract already, 50, but over this three-year period of performance, are there specific plans to, uh, you know, th- that give you the ability to bring on new vendors or allow vendors who aren't really performing any work to exit? Yes, the contracting office does expect to make those on-ramp opportunities available. That's Johanna Curry, Project Officer for the Army Data Center Consolidation Plan in the Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems, talking with us about the Army's new Accent contract. You can find more details about Accent, including a list of the 50 winning vendors who now have basic ordering agreements at federalnewsradio.com. Back in just a minute, and we'll wrap up this week's show with one potential view of the Navy's future fleet. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Serville. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m., I'm Jared Serbu. This is On DoD. And moving to the third of three topics on this week's show. As we reported recently, the Navy's about to release its own thoughts about how its leaders believe it can meet what that service sees as growing security challenges. That new look is likely to emphasize the use of new technologies and may or may not include a plan to build to the 355-ship fleet the Navy has previously said it needs. The Navy and Congress have been turning to outside experts to help them think through a future fleet design. One of those comprehensive studies was published recently by the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Brian Clark is a senior fellow at CSBA and lead author on their fleet design study. And Brian, I guess the most logical place to start is with the strategic landscape. Um, talk talk to us a bit about the kinds of security challenges you think the Navy's going to face, you know, return to great power competition, et cetera, and, and 
why the fleet structure we have today is not optimized for that. Sure, Jared. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on, by the way. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. The uh, strategic landscape that we are looking at is in the 2030s. So the tasking from Congress for this study was to look in the 2030 timeframe and evaluate what the security challenges are likely to be and determine what our fleet might need to look like to address those challenges. So it's a different set of uh, concerns than we have today. The two things that we think are, are going to be significant changes between now and then are uh, one, China and Russia um, are going to be much more capable than they are today. So even though Russia is a small uh, military power unnecessarily, but it has a high capability military force, it'll be even more capable in this time frame. China clearly has a, a rather large military and is growing it, and it will, in addition, be more capable in the 2030s. So both of them have, will have the ability to pursue the kinds of aggression that they've been trying to to uh, assert themselves into in their near abroad over the last couple of years. Uh, the second thing is uh, we're going to face a continued challenge from terrorism and uh, insurgency like we have, but with more capable weapons and more capable uh, methods of disseminating information. So those two big trends are going to drive the way the Navy needs to develop. And so then describe the, you know, the basic concepts behind the deterrence force and the maneuver force that you talk about in the study. How, how do those differ from the ways in which the Navy thinks about deploying and rotating units now? Sure. The, uh, the way the Navy deploys today is uh, kind of that post-Cold War construct where we didn't really have a, a peer competitor. The United States was able to pretty much beat anybody that it faced in a military fight. Uh, and as a result, it just needed to have enough military forces deployed overseas to demonstrate our resolve, to show that we mean business and that um, the forces that we maintain overseas will be the leading edge of an eventual U.S. response. And that kept most countries like Iran, China, to, to some degree, Russia, North Korea in line because they saw that, well, this may not be the force that's going to beat me that's out here. This force is sufficient for me to get the U.S. involved, and eventually they're going to win because uh, they are a predominant military power. That's not going to be the case here in the 2030s. We're going to have to face competitors that could probably could beat us in some situations close to home, especially when it comes to their, their forces. So we felt like uh, the force that we deploy today, which is mostly carrier strike groups deployed overseas as the main unit of issue of U.S. naval power, uh, aren't really well suited for that. Because what happens is those carrier strike groups can be suppressed for some short period of time by large numbers of missile attacks. And what happens is uh, because the kinds of objectives that a China or a Russia has in this time period are going to be things that are relatively close to their country. So think about Taiwan for China or maybe the Baltic states for Russia. They could get those countries or get those uh, objectives within a few days or maybe a week. And they can suppress a carrier strike group during that time frame so that it's not able to generate a lot of combat sorties uh, and not unable to launch aircraft. So you, you're left with a force that's unable to really impact a warfight in the time frame it would need to to make a difference. So we've shifted to instead split up the Navy uh, that's deployed overseas to uh, include a deterrence force, which is largely missile-based forces, so uh, surface ships and submarines, and they stay up forward, and they're able to generate a large number of fires in a short period of time on short notice. So if a, if a war fight occurs, if you know, an aggression occurs from China trying to attack Taiwan or Russia trying to attack the Baltics, these forces can attack uh, those forces very rapidly with missiles uh, for a short period of time, and then they run out of missiles. 
then they're backed up by the, what we call the maneuver force. And the maneuver force is where those carrier strike groups go. And they, st- they spend some, most of their time somewhat offshore uh, where they can't necessarily be suppressed early on, but then they can come in after the fight has started and back up the deterrence forces and be able to do what they do best, which is sustain combat power over a really long period of time. So, so an adversary is faced with this very high volume missile-based set of fires early on that, that turns into uh, carrier airstrikes that'll continue for you know, however long they need to continue. So it's a much more uh, formidable opponent that, the, that the China or Russia or Iran would face than they do today, and more suited to what those two different forces do. And importantly, and you sort of touched on this, but those deterrent forces are continuously present in a given of the world right. all the time, essentially. That's right. So instead of today where we have um, a small number of forces that kind of are maintained overseas and then carrier strike groups tend to kind of go through the area periodically, our deterrence forces would remain in that region um, all the time, and they're mostly going to be based overseas. So they would be based there, home ported there uh, in the region like we do today in Rota, Spain or in uh, Singapore or in Japan. Uh, But then they would, um, and they'd remain there. So they would be tailored to that region. They would get familiar with that region, and they would spend all their time to Deployed to that region, so the the crews on those ships would get used to the the allies, the the potential uh, opponents, the threats that they have in those regions. They get familiar with the environment, and it would help them to innovate and become more more capable of defeating potential adversaries in that region. Uh, and then the maneuver force is much more flexible, and it operates throughout the entire Indo Asia Pacific region. So if the Navy were to make this kind of transition, what would it need to change in terms of, of platforms? I mean, how much of this can you achieve with ships that are already in the inventory? To what extent do you need to buy more of the same or entirely different kinds of assets? So the uh, we built a shipbuilding plan to accompany the fleet architecture that uh, started with today's fleet. So we, we would use all of the things in today's fleet going forward. Uh, and then we would evolve the fleet over time into the 2030s by uh, not buying some ships uh, anymore and then buying new ships in uh, some numbers and then uh, buying more of today's ships in some numbers. So the ones we buy more of uh, that we have today are submarines. So the Virginia-class submarines, we would buy more of those to get up to an eventual number of 66, which is 12 or 13 more than today. We would buy uh, fewer destroyers than the Navy already has, uh, and then we would buy more smaller surface combatants. So we'd buy more LCSs or frigates uh, going forward, and we'd buy a new class of smaller surface vessel, which is like a corvette um, that is con- that's similar to what a lot of other nations have. So we'd buy surface forces that are um, maybe more more numerous, but geared towards a smaller set of ships than uh, than the large uh, combatants that we have today. We'd buy pretty much the same number of amphibious warships and then repurpose some of them to be carrying mostly uh, fixed-wing aircraft instead of helicopters and, and MV-22s. We'd buy uh, a little bit different mix of logistics ships than we have today, but we'd repurpose all the existing ones to try to use them in new ways uh, using new operating concepts. Uh, and we would you know, use some different uh, support vessels in the future, but we would repurpose the ones we have today's, today, like the, the joint high-speed vessel and the, the float forward staging base. Uh, we'd use those into the future, but then we would replace them with more purpose-built ships for the types of operations our fleet is expected to do. So it keeps a lot of what today's fleet has, adds a little bit more in some categories, and then adds a couple of new categories of ships. In terms of overall number, I think you're pushing toward 340 uh, using the current counting rules compared to, I think, right. it's 275 today. 
what is what does that do to maintenance requirements? I mean, not not only are you going to have a larger fleet, it sounds like you're going to be running some of these vessels pretty hard. So, is there enough right. throughput in the shipyard industrial base, public and private, to accommodate everything you want to do with this fleet? We did analysis of the industrial base. That's a great question. And so we looked at the the public industrial base, the public shipyards work on nuclear powered ships today. So all of our public shipyards, all they work on are aircraft carriers and submarines. Um, and th- those uh, shipyards would need to be expanded a little bit to accommodate the, the fleet that we anticipate, mostly to accommodate changes in uh, carrier home porting. Uh, we anticipate more carriers be based on the West Coast, and there would need to be probably an additional dry dock on the West Coast to accommodate that. Uh, then in the private, ship building, or sh- private shipyards uh, for maintenance, that's where we do all the maintenance on our surface combatants and our amphibious ships uh, and our support vessels. And we, the analysis we did indicated that the private shipyard industrial base would be able to accommodate that, um, but it would need to be uh, there would need, need to be work, more workers uh, within the existing infrastructure, and they need to be more flexible in order to accommodate the fact that, like you said, the the, the ships are going to be operating at a higher operational tempo, so coming in more frequently for maintenance and maybe having less time for each individual maintenance availability. So that means that when they come into the shipyard, the shipyard's going to have to be able to hit the ground running, get the work done, and then send the ship back out. And lastly, in our last couple of minutes here, Brian, just from a manpower perspective, that the, the Navy is certainly smaller than it was the last time we had a, a fleet that was north of 300 ships. Have you right. looked at, A, how many more sailors you would need to support this design, and also what it does to deploy the dwell cycles for individual sailors? Yeah, so we looked at the uh, specifically deploy and dwell cycles. So I made a, a point in the study of evaluating that and ensuring we didn't exceed the current guidelines that the Navy operates under. So right now, the Navy's limit for um, at-sea is uh, 50%. So they, they try to keep all of our at-sea units below 50% operational tempo. And so we did the same thing in this study and actually drove it a little bit less than that. Uh, and then if you're on a sea tour and you're staying less than 50%, that means over the course of your career, then you're even lower than 50% because you only do a sea tour for three to five years, and then you go ashore for three years or so. So that overall evens out to be you know an overall lower operational tempo for that person. And then in terms of the number of people, we determined that we would need about 15% more people in the Navy. So that's about 45,000 more sailors to be able to man this larger fleet. Uh, and so what it ended up being is the cost to buy this larger Navy uh, ended up being about 18% more than the Navy's current plans. And the operations and maintenance costs ended up being about 15% more, and the people ended up being about 15% more. So in terms of overall cost, you could say that the Navy of the future that we're proposing would cost 15 to 20 percent more than today's Navy. That's Brian Clark, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, talking with me about his study on a larger Navy, what it would cost and how it would operate. It's called Restoring American Sea Power. We'll post a link to the full document at federalnewsradio.com. Earlier in the show, we talked to Johanna Curry from the Army Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems about the Army's new Accent contract for cloud computing and three guests about the new Hack the Air Force Challenge. If you missed any of this week's program, we'll post the whole thing, as always, at federalnewsradio.com. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbin. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.